Hey Ron, I just wanted to say it's been a huge year and we've made it to Christmas, so congratulations and thanks. Jimmy, same to you. What a year it's been for us. Started our podcast business and we made some great investments too. I know, mate. It's actually amazing when you think about it, what you can achieve in six months if you really put your mind to it. Plus, we have to admit, there has been a few late nights. We have had a few late nights, Jimmy, but, you know, hard work pays off. A bit like our tennis team that we're playing, narrowly missing out on finals last season, came back a bit stronger, a bit hungrier, and uh, we're running top of the ladder. So, Jim, what did you get up to over the weekend, the last weekend before we had into Christmas? Well, Ron, the highlight, and you've referenced it, was showing up to the Grace Park Hawthorne Club club rooms for the Christmas party there. Our team was top of the table, as you said. The table tennis and the Christmas cocktails were flowing. It was really great. So, back to the podcast. Now, what's on the agenda for R&J Yarn listeners over the next few weeks? Well, firstly, Jimmy, we've got Sue Diet, who is CEO of the Mission to Seafarers, is a charity here in Melbourne that looks after the seafarers when they come into the Melbourne port. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. I can't wait to get there. We're going to have an interview. We're going to do a tour. We'll take some photos with one of our production crew, Adam, who's going to join us. Now, it's a great time of year just to pause and take the focus off ourselves for a second. So let's hear from Sue Dyte, who is running an amazing charity right here in Melbourne. It's such an honour to be hosting this episode of the R&J Yarn here at the Mission to Seafarers building in the Docklands, Melbourne. Today we are interviewing the CEO of the mission, Sue Dyte. Sue is tremendously talented and had a rich career story leading up to this role. She studied international business and then an MBA. She had 18 years as a restaurateur in the cutthroat Melbourne hospitality scene. She then did an overseas stint working for the Australian Trade Commission, followed by returning to Melbourne and beginning another stage in her career, organising events and building companies in the fashion and not-for-profit sector. You might say that all roads were leading to this role, Sue. Leading a not-for-profit which looks after seafarers. But much more than that, the mission building is alive. It's a chapel, an art gallery, a music venue, a theatre, a wedding venue, but above all, it's a place of companionship and support for seafarers, one of the most forgotten groups in our society. So, Sue, it's truly an honour for Rod and I to be here today to chat to you. You're very welcome. So, Sue, we like to start with a few quick fire questions for our podcast. They're kind of like this or that sort of questions. Um, so the first question is a bit of a toughie. So... We're here at a venue steeped in history of Port Melbourne, um, and I wanted to ask you, what's your favourite sea shanty? Oh, it has to be, what What do you do with a drunken sailor? <laughs> Especially after I've been serenaded by a couple at the bar. <laughs> totally agree. Okay, and so you were a restaurant, you were a chef for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. You're very well qualified to give us your top one or two recommendations of restaurants in Melbourne, what would, what would they be the top two? A little bit biased, but Chicholina and Akron Street. Yeah. It's my sister's restaurant. <laughs> is that, is that Mexican Chicholina? Chicholina Italian. Italian. Italian style. Italian. It's been around for over 25 years. Wow. 
and then there's a lovely little Korean restaurant down in Huntingdale. Yeah. That's close to my house and love that place. Beautiful. Okay. And so you also spent quite a bit of time in London organising events for Australian Trade Commission. What was your favourite thing about being based and living over in London? Oh, it would have to have been the Duck and Dingo. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people know this, but underneath Australia House, there's a little pub that just the people that work in Australia House can go to. And um, secretly, the rack used to fly in the tin tams, the beers and the pies. <laughs> yeah, it's always great seeing Aussies when you're overseas and bring to, makes you kind of feel like you're at home for it. It is. is, doesn't it? And the main hall there was used as Gringotts Bank in the first Harry mm. Potter. So most people don't know those sorts of facts about mm. some of those beautiful heritage buildings over there. And so what would you say is your most um, recommended place to visit during Open House 2022? Oh, 2022? Well, here, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, there's some um, design collaborations going to be held here yeah. um, with some uh, architects and designers, and they're doing an installation in the, in the dome. Oh, in the dome. Wow. That incredible. We'll have, to, we'll have to try and get down to, to have a look. Yes. So, finally, what's your favourite story from your seven years caring for seafarers here in Melbourne? Your favourite seafarer story? My favourite seafarer story. I loved the fact that we're able to still care for one seafarer as he's still in Melbourne after he was injured and we're still caring for him now. But I have to love I have to admit I really love standing behind seafarers and waving to their wives and their kids mm -hmm. because to them they know that their seafarers are safe. Mm -hmm. They're on land. Safe. Mm. So you mean like in a Zoom call or in something like that? In a Zoom like call, that? a FaceTime call. Yeah. I'm standing behind them, just waving as we go past, and I, reassuring their family on the other side of the world that they're okay. Mm. That's what I, you know, really makes me passionate about what we're doing. Yeah. And so, one more question I lied. Would you say you're more of a dog or a cat person? Definitely dogs. Dogs. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you have any any dogs? Uh, I had a beautiful black Labrador um, mm. cross, and she only passed away last month. So, uh, yeah. but she was fifteen so and a half. She was fifteen and a half. She'd had a beautiful life. Mm. So you know, it's sad to see them go, but sometimes yeah. you just know it's time. Mm. Yeah, I'd done a bit of snooping on Twitter, and I'd seen uh, you walking your dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ella Fitzgerald, her name was. She was big, black, and loud. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, it's such an honour to be here and have a tour around the building really made it very real for me, um, apart from just doing the research. So the organisation, the Mission to Seafarers, started in 1857. Perhaps you could tell us just a bit about the work of the mission here in Melbourne as it is today. You know, what is the main services you provide? Well, ordinarily, we pick up our seafarers in our, in our buses, we bring them back here, we're a place of hospitality for place to rest, relax, you know, play pool, connect to Wi-Fi, go out shopping. Mm. You know, they'd um, change their money because they get paid in US dollars cash. They'd buy a phone card so when they're roaming and all the rest of it. And then they'd go out, they'd spend their money on restaurants and shopping and things like that. Mm. Those that have cash. The rest of them um, are stuck on board their ship. And since COVID, 
no seafarers being allowed ashore. So in the last 18 months, we've cared for them in a variety of ways, including having an online chat to a chaplain service, whereby they can talk about their fears, their worries, get news from home, because quite often news is so biased here in Australia, to, we don't talk about what happens overseas. So they want overseas news. And we've also been shopping for them since <laughs> March. <laughs> March 2020, we've done over half a million dollars worth of shopping here. That's a lot of click and collect. That's a lot of socks, jobs, yeah. chocolates, um, basketballs. The most unusual request was a swimming pool. Um, <laughs> what? Yep. And, you, and you got a swimming pool? I wasn't able to get it delivered within three days. Oh, no. I found the one I wanted, one that would oh. fit between containers on the deck. Wow. And, you know, in their deck configuration and I just couldn't get it delivered because it was locked down. Otherwise, I would have been able to Was that that you had to get it before, like, that ship was departing? Yes. Wow. Because the ships are only in port for less, some of them less than 24 hours. Yeah. And so they send us their shopping lists. We then procure everything we can. If we're lucky, they've given us two weeks' notice. Yeah. Mm. If not, it's a matter of scrambling finding things and then bringing them back and then we deliver to the bottom of the gangway. Mm. They would give us an envelope full of cash for their goods. We don't charge for the service. Mm. It's purely, you know, so that they have something to stimulate them. And then mm. we supply prize packs so that they have games nights on board and the captains then keep them entertained. And we also provide care packs as well. And so that half a million that you've spent, um, where does that come from? Like, what sort of um, people are donating to you? If there's anyone listening, is there a particular, like, website they can look at if they, you know, want to, you know, get involved? Sure. The, our Mission to Seafarers website mm. is missiontoseafarers.com.au. That's mm. the Melbourne one. And it's not just financial um, spend. It's also beanies mm. for our care packages. Mm. Hand-knitted beanies mean... Something for the head to keep you warm, hmm. but your heart, because it means someone on shore cares for you enough to make you something handmade. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so the plight of seafarers is, is not a well-known one. I must admit, I'm from Wellington in New Zealand, and uh, I was a little bit involved in the, there was a mission to seafarers there, at the port there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a real eye to me in terms of just learning a little bit about uh, kind of the situation so I think I read on your website that at any point in time there's a, there could be up to say 1.5 million people working on the seas working on the ships at the moment and on average they'd be away from home for about 11 months yeah so it's 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 entirely unique situation isn't it um they can be away for months on end so is that is can you tell us a little bit about the rights of seafarers and is this is are they protected by international law or um and is their situation improving at all? There's a, a global convention called the Maritime Labor Convention. And the Maritime Labor Convention was set up in 2006. Within Australia, we signed up in 2013. So international seafarers are protected by law. That doesn't stop rogue operators, of course, mm. that underpay, that provide bad conditions. But here in Australia, we're very um, fortunate 
and seafarers are very fortunate that they're protected by AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. They're the ones who uphold the MLC on behalf of seafarers here in Australia. So they have the right to ban ships from coming to Australia mm. if the human rights of the seafarer are not upheld. If they go on board and make an inspection whereby the seafarers are underpaid or underfed, surprisingly that happens, mm. um, or you know, for, if their conditions aren't right, if there's safety concerns, they can ban that ship from Australian waters or they can hold it until things are rectified. And they've done a few of those recently because of the rights of seafarers. But that doesn't stop rogue operators. And there have been a lot of abandonments during COVID and seafarers' rights have not been upheld. How do you mean about abandonments? What does that mean? The shipping company will abandon the ship. They will stop paying the seafarers, they'll stop supplying the ships. So they've got no food, no fuel, nothing to actually allow them to come ashore or go home. And then because of the way maritime law is set up, you cannot leave an event, a, a ship if you're the captain. Re only recently, um, within the last 12 months, there was a ship's captain who had been aboard and abandoned for four years. He was living alone on that ship for nearly four years. And the mission over there were able to supply him with food mm. and water and you know generators and things like that, fuel for a generator. Because otherwise he was we know of crews that have been living on air conditioning water and things like that. Mm. And whatever supplies they've been able to fish for. Mm. So it is quite it can be quite dire for some reason. Mm. And do you tell us that story of a you know a captain being stuck there because of the rules around it? Why do you think it is that not many people um, generally hear about that? Like, why is there not more attention in the media about these sort of things, do you think? As an island nation, one would think people would recognise shipping mm. Mm. as they used to. Mm. You know, the history and the heritage of this place is because people relied on the oceans to get here. Mm. Once containerisation came in and... Things just appeared in boxes. Mm. They weren't, you know, a sack of grain, a barrel of pork or whatever it is, mm. you know, a barrel of rum even. It was all containerized. Mm. Once that started to happen, people started to forget where things came from. They mm. came out of boxes. They came from shops. Mm. They came from, I don't know, far away and not necessarily from their own backyard. Mm. Mail goes by air. Very rarely do we send parcels by sea. Mm. It's more expensive to send, and it takes mm. a long time. Mm. So if we lost a collective consciousness about seafaring and those people on the oceans. And it's a really good message this time of year as everyone's, you know, online ordering their Christmas presents. Um, no one's really thinking about what's what actually that processes of that, that um, I don't know, that iPad coming for America or, or even just your general groceries at the supermarket that you're getting ready for the festive season. We're getting all our, um, I don't know, fruit, fruit cake or whatever it is. People need to, you know, realise that there's an actual process into that arriving to our table. Mm. Um, 
and need to kind of appreciate it a bit more, I think. And in terms of um, seafarers being quite um, challenged and not getting the support they need, what sort of like mental health issues do you think you sort of see seafarers having as a result of the way they're treated? For some, it's quite dire. Mm. Um, they make one journey and one journey only, and that's if they get through their journey. Um, we know that suicide is very prevalent on their ships. Um, you know, seafarers that are lost at sea may well have just walked off the back of the ship. Yeah. And we don't count those numbers. Mm. And we think about the mental health statistics of suicides of young men here in Australia. Mm. And they, they all have pressures that put upon them. And mm. then it's amplified in a seagoing environment. Mm. Quite often you've got a crew that is a mixed crew. There are mixed um, nationalities. Mm. You might have bullies on board. You mm. might have just that loneliness mm. that comes with being at sea. You might have 20 people around you. But it's the same 20 people that you're having breakfast, breakfast with for nine months. Mm. It gets lonely. Mm. Is, it, is it something that you notice when they come in here? Is it, you know, they come in here and sit down. Can you sort of spot the signs of someone who's really struggling with it? Or do, do they contact you when they say that? Or? We can. And usually it's in the bus trip between the port and here. You can tell who's excited. You can tell who is tired mm. because they've been working every day of the, their nine-month contract, in a mm. sense. You don't really get a day off. Um, and you can tell that fatigue. And fatigue leads, leads to accidents. Mm. And some accidents may well be self-inflicted so they can get off the ship. Mm. There are others that are pure accidents, whereby, you know, a seafarer only a couple of months ago broke his leg, but it took two days to get to the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And so... That, ha that has other ad added pressures and anxieties. Will I work again? Who's going to pay the hospital bills? All those sorts of things. Mm. That's why we have chaplains on staff and trained ship visitors to talk to these guys. Mm. Mm. As well, and there's other international phone lines and helplines as well, a little mm. like Lifeline here in Australia, purely dedicated to seafarers. Mm. And it's not just cargo ships, it's also cruise ships and offshore ship specialist rigs and things like that. Mm. And so are there any other particular services that you kind of work with here in Melbourne to like go out to the ships? Like would it just be, if you're doing like the groceries, you're just kind of going on the Woolies website and getting it arranged to go straight to them? Or does someone have to meet them there and bring it onto the ship or? It has to come here. It has to come here, yeah. So we pick and pack and sort, mm. and then we take it to the ship because we've got to fill in the border force forms You've got to have a security clearance to get onto the docks. Wow. So just for like they a, can't even just get for a like pizza a delivery. Bags of whatever. No, they can't <laughs> even get a pizza delivery. Wow. So we'll have uh, Uber Eats guys know us well. We'll get the pizzas delivered here, the Krispy Kremes, the McDonald's, and then we take it to the ships. It's yeah. cold, bus to leave it. Wow. wow. And, and that situation has been made a lot worse by COVID. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, in the past, they've come into town. You know, they'd come here or they'd be allowed through the security barriers to go and get it themselves. Mm. So we've really had to change over the last 18 months in our service delivery style. Mm. And because of lockdowns, we haven't been able to utilise our volunteers. 
because our volunteer workforce had been locked down as well. So we were, my staff, my small staff were able to um, get work permits enabled to, to enable us to do that. And so if there were people listening that are hearing these stories and they actually want to kind of get involved and, and help your mission here, mm-hmm. is the easiest thing to just go onto your website? Is there a page where they can... What sort of, what sort of things might they be able to do? Mm. There's lots of things people can do. They can sign up to our newsletter, which is free, called Ship to Shore, mm. and keep up with our news. They can donate their time, mm. some money, some um, used stamps. I actually have someone that buys used stamps from me. <laughs> As a donation, they can knit beanies. They can come here and do volunteer shift. Once we get seafarers off their ships again, of which I'm working very hard to try and achieve mm. for vaccinated seafarers, they can come and drive our buses. Mm. I'm in desperate need of someone that likes to polish brass. We have a lot of brass around here, <laughs> um, so someone that enjoys tidying up and that kind of thing. Mm. So there are ways to help that don't involve spending cash but you know a little bit of time is certainly valued just as highly here Mm. Mm. and so the easiest thing would be just to kind of shoot you an email shoot us an email there's a sign up form on our website as well for volunteers Mm. Um, we also have a very big heritage collection and anyone that's (laughs) interested in heritage next year will ramp back up into our program of sorting through our heritage putting our stories together Mm. so that we then have different stories to tell through our exhibitions and displays. Mm. Mm. And so what sort of other things are you guys looking out to doing in the future here? Like, is there any other big plans for the next, you know, couple of years? Well, the building, whilst we built it in 1917, mm. is now owned by the state, the yeah. building itself, because it's on Crown land, which mm. means everyone here owns it. Yeah. Um, it's also... So what we're planning on doing is putting the seafarer centre upstairs so that downstairs we can raise enough revenue to keep our welfare work going. So we're planning weddings, we've got events, we've got Open House Melbourne, we've got um, pirate shows, we've got uh, social groups, community groups. There's lots of different community groups that meet here weekly mm. and monthly. Mm. So people can get involved with all those sorts of groups. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, see, it's been great to talk about the mission. Now, we're going to take a slightly different tack. Okay. Yeah. And we're just going to talk a bit about yourself for a little bit. That's okay. And so I guess you think about your own career. It's been very varied. You know, you've worked as a chef, you've worked in London and events, you've built up businesses, talked about open open homes, open home, open Open house house. earlier. now, did you think you'd end up being CEO of a, a not-for-profit business like this? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Um, well, I started out as a work experience in high school. I did a week in an accounting for a motor, and I did a week in a kitchen. That made my decision. That and I was lousy at maths, yeah. and I wouldn't have passed high school. So I finished year 11. I went off and became a chef. Absolutely loved the job. Um, opened up my own businesses very early in the piece. Decided I liked being my own boss. And so just developed things over time when it came to that. I've also worked with my husband for a very long time in his sound and lighting business. And so doing those sorts of PAs, geeks, 
running events that way. After that, going to London, doing an undergraduate degree, doing all sorts of bits and pieces over there, I liked running major events and exhibitions and conferences. I came back to Melbourne and ran Melbourne's leading design, or Australia's leading interior design event called Design X. Mm. And that was challenging, mm. but really exciting. And getting involved with that interior design world, understanding who architects were, who interior designers were, the, the complexity design, the height of building program. Mm. And then I switched companies and went and worked for someone who, and I ran the Fashion Exposed, which is Australia's leading fashion exhibition where the buyers used to come to. It wasn't for the public, all trade. And because of the size of that, it just became, um, you know, having 600 clients, it was just manageable. Mm. I then ran the State of Design Festival and public events, which led to open house for a few years. And I took that from 20 um, open buildings mm. to over 100. Mm. So yeah. the amount of people coming through, volunteer management, a whole range of other things. And I was always intrigued in open house about this building. It wasn't on the program. I put it on the program <laughs> to purely find out about it. Yeah. And that's how I ended up here. Yeah. I fell in love with the architecture. Mm. And you showed us that now interview today all those great um, cathedral and the dome and the outside court area. What particular pieces you could say of the architecture here fascinated you the most that you perhaps saw when you first came here? When I first came here, it was the intriguing, um, the Toronto floor in the foyer. Mm. A compass? I thought, okay, that's very nautical. Mm. And then I looked at um, uh, the app on my phone and it's two degrees out. Has the earth shifted? Were they just that bad? <laughs> or is that pretty good for World War One in design? The whole building fascinated me. And I describe it as a TARDIS. For those who have the Dr. Hume knowledge, yeah. you walk inside and it just goes on and on and on. Mm. And because it does have that club feel in some places, mm. it's just a beautiful place to be. Mm. Very calm. Mm. Even though I stomp around on the floors, and, uh, but you know, going through the renovation program over the last couple of years to bring the standard up um, of the place—that's been very rewarding. What do you think? I mean, just to cut down, I don't know what it was like pre-yourself suit, but uh, what do you think you have brought to the building? Like, I'm wondering, as a lot of the art we've seen, a lot of the events, and the the bit of flair that's here is that is that sort of something you think that you might have contributed you might have brought that i'm contributed to a sense that um i've been able to facilitate some upgrades some of them were have been scheduled for over 20 years mm. and it's finally been able to come to fruition because of a, a way of managing some of these things um and applying pressure really mm. to the government to ensure that these upgrades happened um, the style of hospitality has changed to, to a bit more of a professional-facing workforce. And we've been a little more open to a variety of events here. Mm. Um, 
over and above what we normally would. It's mm. mm, wonderful. Now, I've got a, you didn't actually mention it, but I've got in from our research that um, uh, you set up your own business called mm -hmm. Touring Enterprises. Yeah. Uh, and this was back in uh, two, 2004, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and you've, uh, you have owned a number of businesses. Mm -hmm. Perhaps your husband's owned a few businesses as well. Like, is that something that has, during your career, has come quite naturally in terms of um, being prepared to take that risk and go out on your own and start a business, own a business? It came from when I was a newly qualified chef. The GST came in, showing my age. Yeah. The GST came in, and because of that, a lot of the places that I was qualified to work in were no longer viable restaurants. Mm. And because they weren't viable restaurants, and I didn't particularly want to go and work in a large hotel chain, I opened up my own small business. I bought a sandwich shop. And it was wonderful, and I was my own boss, I was making money. And my husband worked with me on that, and then we progressed from that small shop to a restaurant. He was also still running his PA and sound business. And so different businesses we've opened and closed and sold and things like that. And we've also then bought a, about seven years ago, we bought an old handkerchief factory, which we've converted to a business because we put a cafe in there. There's a co-working place, there's a storage facility and our home as well. Is this the John Street? This is John Complex. Street. Complex. I think I found the website. And John Street space. Yes. I'm showing one we should go and do our podcast work and media work in there. So it's the, <laughs> yeah, John Street space looks wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well that's the old uh, sewing machine room. That it was designed as a co-working space. We, we designed it as a co-working space. But we've had a company in there for three years. And they won't look like leaving anytime soon. So I haven't had to lease that out individually, but as a cooperative, it's leased out. So that complex of buildings is another part of our business. And so, Sue, for young people like myself who are a similar age to me, perhaps, and are looking at getting a bit entrepreneurial and wanting to maybe start their own business, mm -hmm. what sort of words of advice would you have for them? And what sort of things should they be thinking about when they start thinking about entering into that sort of Thing. It's about taking measured risks, mm. calculated risks, and being prepared to back yourself and understanding when things aren't going right, there is advice out there, there are people you can turn to and say, look, I don't think this is going well, how can you help me? Um, I was fortunate enough that when I did start my first business, and I was in my early 20s, um, I had a bank manager that knew, that was willing to actually put my payroll through, even if I haven't, hadn't got to the bank, right? Because he knew I had the money, but I just hadn't got physically to the bank because it closed at three on Friday. Mm. I hadn't been able to shut up the shop early enough. Mm. So it was great having that relationship with someone. That, I, that he knew that I was good enough to do that. Mm. Um, unfortunately, banks don't do that anymore, but there are other advisors out there that can say to you, look, just watch this because of this. Um, they might not be a financial backer, but they might be a mentor of some sort. Mm. And finding a mentor is quite valuable for that. Mm. Um, and it doesn't even have to be someone older. Mm. Someone to bounce ideas from. Mm. 
Yeah, Jimmy's a bit like that for me in a way, with sort of my sort of crazy ideas. Um, so you had like the banker. Was there any other sort of key figures or mentors along the way that you might want to shout out or that kind of did things that helped you? Well, my dad actually, because yeah. my dad was able, I was able to tell me when I was an idiot. <laughs> um, and I also come from a family of strong women. So we were all prepared to just pitch in. And, you know, at one point, our business was going absolutely terrible. And my husband went off and did um, garbage removal, mm. you know, did handyman services, totally out of his realm. Mm. But he did everything to make sure that the bills were paid. And sometimes mm. you have to be prepared to sweep the floors for yourself because you can't afford to pay someone else to do it. You have to be prepared to work really hard to make a business work. Mm. And it's not all intellectual. Sometimes it's just physical labour. Mm. And unfortunately in our society, Sue, the statistics sort of outfavour females you know, business ownership and things like that. What sort of things have, have you sort of done to kind of overcome that challenge and be like a real leader and, and be the CEO here, being a female um, and what, you know, is there any sort of advice you give to females who want to sort of follow in your footsteps? Don't be afraid. Mm. People, I've always worked with strong women and for strong women. Mm. And you need to take that courage with you mm. from them. Mm. And... When I was a chef, when I was really starting out, there was a bloke hired at the same time I was, and he was promoted in front of me. And I was left on the dishes, and I was given the shabby shifts. And I always swore that that wouldn't happen along the way, which is why I branched out on my own. Which is why I got a very, very loud motorbike. Yeah. Which is why a lot of women do start their own businesses. Yeah. And it's purely because they need they need to show their leadership. And that leadership, if it's done in the right way, can bring them with a lot of people behind them. Mm. I still mentor my original first apprentice. Wow. So, yeah, it's a it's a really great I really liked what you said there, it's interesting perhaps about how women start their own businesses because it allows them to show show what they're capable of. Mm. Another, just another, another thread that sort of comes through, I think, is your ability to to get volunteers. You know, you think about the number of things you've done. I take open house for example. All the volunteers you've that to get those, take it from thirty to hundred. That presumably was three times as many volunteers required. Is that is that? Do you think in society these days there is a lot of people out there wanting to volunteer? Um, how do you go about finding them? Here, particularly, um, it, it comes down to people's passions. Yeah. And if you can tap into the right passion within people, they're willing to do a lot for that passion. Um, here in particular, you know, uh, our current vice chairman walked in to change his address details on his newsletter. And now he's the vice chairman of the board. Um, others, they come here for different reasons whether it be just to learn something new. Um, we currently have a hospitality training program for volunteers so that they can 
young people can learn skills in hospitality, which is also filling a gap here in Melbourne at the moment. Um, and because we're a safe place, so they can learn skills. And that's where you know, we're trying to bring our volunteers along with us and give them skills to go on with. And some of our older volunteers were involved in the industry and want to give back. So volunteering is its something that um, most people aspire to, but they never get around to. So true. And it shouldn't take more than an hour or two a month of your time. If you're willing to actually sit down and make the time, isn't it, really? exactly, and, and making the time to do it. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a couple more questions for you, Sue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've had a wonderful career story, and that continues today, and it's still going, of course. And another thing that I noticed when I was doing a bit of research was uh, we saw that on LinkedIn there's a great picture of you taking three seafarers to get vaccinated. At the pharmacy, Collins Square, I think it was. Um, so you clearly, in throughout your career, have also given a lot back. And so perhaps the question is: Was there an experience early on in your career, or was there was there someone early on in your career that kind of influenced you to be such a giving person, and, and to spend? I think I might have said in our pre-chat said to Sue, you know, you could have been a bank manager, you could have gone and. You know, you could be an executive in banking if you wanted to, but why have you chosen to do it? I could go out and make a lot more money, yes, than working in charities. My parents, I would have to say, um, they've always given back, whether it be the church fate, the community this, the community that. They, they were both, oh, my, both, both my parents were Rotarians. Um, my father passed away, sadly, about 10 years ago. Um, and so they're, they're both giving back through Rotary. Moment. My mother's a Paul Harris fellow, which is an accolade that they receive. Um, I shouldn't say they because I've actually joined Rotary. It wasn't by choice. I was Shanghai'd. So if the person who Shanghai'd me is listening to this, you know who you are. Um, and so on the weekend, on Sunday morning, I was at Caulfield Racecourse at 9am to do a world record attempt on packing hygiene products. Um, and we succeeded. <laughs> we managed that the whole group we managed to pack over 5,800 hygiene packs within an hour. Wow. So it's it's something that was instilled in me from the very beginning. My parents were giving people, my grandmother worked in adult migrant education post World War II and was the first principal of adult education schools in Victoria. So there's always been a family history um, behind that. And my mother was a nurse, so, you know, mm. another caring person. And so the other side to that question, Sue, is you've developed these great um, traits. How do you then pass that on to other people to, to care about those sort of values and be more sort of giving and, um, like, what sort of things would you say to, you know, me or Jimmy to have that, like to decide to maybe do more non-for-profit work like is there certain like key words you'd have to say about that or well it was, it was explained to me quite differently just the other day we live in a country called australia but it's called the commonwealth of australia is our official mm. country title mm. what does commonwealth mean sharing mm. Mm. Yeah, we don't so, think about that. No. 
you don't think about it in that term. Our commonwealth is the sharing of the land. You know, the Aboriginal people have shared their land with us. It wasn't by choice, mm. but they shared the land with us. If we share our wealth with people, and our wealth doesn't have to be, as I said earlier, it doesn't have to be our money, our time. Mm. And if you find something that you're passionate about, there is a way of giving back, mm. no matter what it is. Mm. There is a charity out there. There is a person out there that may need your help. You may love gardening, right? Your garden looks pristine. Mm. But your next-door neighbour just needs his mud, lawn mowed. That's giving back. That's sharing. It might cost mm. you a little bit of petrol and an hour of your time. But that's giving back to your community. Because then everyone's neighbourhood looks nice and that makes people smile. Mm. Well... What a great way to finish. Um, I really appreciate hearing your, your story today, Sue, and um, it was an honour to be here. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sue, and it's great to showcase the mission here. So, uh, you know, greatly appreciate it. You're very welcome. And to any listeners out there, come on in. We're open seven days a week, every day of the year, from 12 to the public up until about 8 or 10 at night. Well, Ron, what an amazing conversation. We had a great tour, and I can't wait to see Adam's photos. Me too, mate. Adam is world class in what he does. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible chat, really, and the things that Sue described about you know the seafarers was amazing. But um, it was quite incredible as well being there and seeing all the seafarers socialise. You could probably hear in the audio um, there was a bit of music because they were all kind of just hanging out around the incredible bar, incredible hallway. So, Jimmy, what touched you the most? Well, I would have to say, Ron, it was probably the point about how we don't think about shipping in the supply chain nowadays. So, in the past, people used to do a lot more, you know, people would arrive in Australia on boats, or it was a much more common form of transport or a form of delivery. Whereas nowadays, most stuff's by air freight, right? And so we just don't think about the, uh, the, the, the plight of the seafarers, I guess, in, in society. And also, I guess, a lot, of our, um, a lot of our port areas now are sort of high-end living areas rather than being working ports. Mm. So, so we've sort of lost that connection in a way, and I thought that was, that was really good what she said. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I guess... We kind of, you know, we will often complain to our mates about, you know, shipping costs to get express delivery, to get your, your present in time and, and things like that. But the, the kind of sad side to that is that having a quite cheap shipping, you know, there's a cost to that. And it's, you know, hearing what Sue sort of said and what really stuck to me was her mentioning how um, the conditions can be so bad that some seafarers will actually intentionally um, cause harm to themselves just to kind of get attention and be able to get off get off the boat because it's the only option yeah I agree like I hadn't 
I did help out a little bit in Wellington when I was there, but um, I'd never really even thought about the situation. And 1.5 million people working on boats right at this minute, potentially. And on average, they're away from home for 11 months on end. So it just completely puts into perspective, doesn't it, our own little gripes with our work or our living situation and stuff. So, um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all, I guess, that few of them have those sort of mental health difficulties and things like that on the ship. And so Jimmy, with Sue, what inspired you the most about her story in a way and what sort of things stuck out to you that she said? Um, I guess the, another thing she said which I thought was really insightful and just again a unique take was how she said she started working in a restaurant right and she was one of two chefs, her and a, her and a guy who were hired at the same time and she was doing just as good a job as him, but she was passed over for a promotion. And then she decided, well, in order for me to show what I'm capable of doing, I'll go out and start my own business and take on a leadership role. And she said that it's something she's noticed about a lot of women in business. And it, yeah, it, it really brought home to me a sort of a, what might be a little bit of an unconscious bias in businesses, where people might go for, for men over women for certain roles. and and then how that can lead to, to a lot of women saying, well, let's go and set up our own business so we can really show what we're capable of. It was just not something I've thought about in that way before. Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. Sue is a really inspiring person in what she's been able to achieve in her business career, going from starting her own sandwich shop to then working in a few restaurants and, and then doing the fashion work overseas in the UK and coming back here. And now she's the CEO of this charity is truly inspiring and I just think you know that the most inspiring thing in a way isn't really those business achievements it's her ability to encourage other people to follow her direction she's taking in life and motivate others to um, do more charitable sort of work and it was quite amazing her saying how the way to motivate someone to do charities they kind of find out what their passion is and then find out okay how can they use their passion in a giving sort of way a bit like how she was talking about if you like gardening and your neighbor's got overgrown grass like go and um you know mow the lawn for them like it was really touching and i'd never thought about it like that before mm. yeah definitely i really liked when we asked her about you know her advice to people starting out and things like this she said if you're wanting to do something get someone who you can bounce ideas off and I think that's a little bit of a theme that maybe we've heard from other you know Ken said a similar thing as well and I think um, that idea of if you're trying to do something in life you know get someone who you can trust who you can bounce ideas off and then the other thing she said was have a bit of courage you know, take that take that courage with you and what you're doing and uh, I guess it's about getting out there and giving it a go uh, I really liked I really like that mm, and that's you know, particularly great advice for you and me Jimmy with our podcast um, that's a bit like what we do bouncing ideas off each other and so if people are listening and want to get involved with the seafarers there's so many things that Sue mentioned um, you can do you can head to their website knit some beanies for their charity you can work on they need a few people to drive a few buses to port to get seafarers there's a whole list of things you can find out online and i feel like it would be a great opportunity for people to really give back to society 
And so, Jimmy, what's coming up for the next few weeks for our listeners? Yes, so usually this is where we would release our sneak peek. But this week we won't do that because we've got our summer series, which is going to go for the next two weeks. So we'll be talking a bit about the sports that are on, that people will be watching while they're on holiday. We're going to talk a bit about some investing ideas that we have and we'll do a bit of background about about ourselves as well. And then we'll resume our usual Monday releases from the 10th of Jan. So thanks, Jimmy. You have an awesome, well-deserved break over summer. And for our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. And we really appreciate all the feedback we've been getting from our listeners.